Good afternoon. I'm John Stratakis, partner at Poles Tublin here in New York, maritime firm. Uh, thank you for joining us for the Maritime Law and Admiralty Law panel. Uh, as we have uh, our distinguished panel here, I'd like to introduce, uh, starting with Bruce Paulson on the far right there. He's a member of Seward and Kissel's litigation group. Uh, Bruce specializes in handling complex commercial and maritime disputes. His expertise includes securities litigation involving publicly held companies, international trade sanctions, piracy, and enforcement of arbitration awards. He has acted in traditional maritime disputes here in New York, as well as in exotic jurisdictions like the Marshall Islands. Uh, he serves as a member of the litigation committees of the ABA and the International Bar Association and has written and lectured frequently on a variety of topics. Next to him is Jane Sarma, counsel at Reed Smith's shipping practice. Her areas of focus include ship finance, regulatory compliance and sanctions, bankruptcy and restructuring, as well as uh, maritime litigation and arbitration. Jane has acted for lenders and other creditors in numerous restructurings of shipping companies, as well as within formal bankruptcy. She's also advised on the application of US sanctions, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and the UK Bribery Act. And finally, we come to my old friend, Bill Bennett, who's a partner at Blank Rome, concentrating his practice in litigation and alternate dispute resolution. He's a real life mariner, graduate of SUNY Maritime and Coast Guard veteran. His broad litigation experience covers all varieties of marine and shore-based disputes, including charter party disputes, personal injuries, collisions, sinkings, insurance coverage claims, and the like. He's also a regular presenter and has addressed as well the issue of enforcement of maritime liens in the bankruptcy context. So I think we'll have an interesting discussion ahead, uh, New York being one of the commercial centers of the world. It's a track, the place where people come for capital uh, it's also a place where people come for uh, legal advice and resolution, as we heard in the previous panel. So I would like to start with a question to Jane. Uh, traditional ship finance from the likes of European banks, as we've known, uh, RBS and uh, DNB, seem to be on the wane. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Uh, and do you see new sources for finance, especially here in New York? How are your clients financing vessel acquisitions? Well, right now is a very interesting time to be a transactional lawyer in New York. Uh, as John mentioned, the traditional picture of a ship owner going to a bank and getting 85 to 95% leverage, that picture has changed. Bank finance is still a part of the picture for raising capital and shipping, but it's not the only part of the picture. There are lots of different sources, and we're seeing lots of creative solutions to finding capital in what is a very capital-intensive industry. Um, downstairs, there was a lot of talk about alternative ship finance. Um, it's not so alternative anymore. Now it's really part of the mainstream, whether it's private equity coming in as equity or as debt or in a very different sort of hybrid structure, uh, more of like a joint venture or any other structures that might be out there. Um, there is a lot of talk at conferences about Chinese leasing companies. Well, you don't have to go to China to get a sale and leaseback deal. A lot of those are being done here. So really, instead of doing one sort of cookie cutter transaction 
over and over again, which was closer to the picture about 10 years ago before the Lehman Brothers collapse. What transactional lawyers are doing now is a whole lot of different things, and it is a lot of fun to be a lawyer now and let you be a, um, helping clients find a lot of creative solutions. So it's a really fantastic time to go into the transactional side. All right, we'll switch gears to talk about litigation a little bit. Uh, Bill, the Wall Street Journal today, as you quoted, on a very timely story about the issuance of a Coast Guard report on the sinking of the El Faro two years ago. Spoiler alert, the Coast Guard blames the captain. Uh, your firm is involved in that case, and you've expressed some skepticism of the report. Without going into any confidential issues, it's a very timely uh, issue because of this the hurricane now that hit uh, Puerto Rico and the relevance of the Jones Act. Uh, can you tell us the status of that case and whether you see any precedence for today's hurricane issues and, and uh, disputes? Yes, uh, there are a lot of um, topics I can't go into. Although the claims, the personal injury claims and the cargo claims are all done, uh, we still have 30 days in which to comment on the U.S. Coast Guard report. Uh, for some of you who don't know, I represented the interests of Captain Davidson uh, on the El Faro, which uh, sank with the loss of life of 33 people. And the report did come out and has four sections of four entities that had some blame. Uh, and obviously, Captain Davidson being the master of the vessel, um, he was responsible for the vessel. But there are, um, there are some recommendations that you'll see in the report that will uh, impact Jones Act shipping. Uh, the El Faro was uh, nearly 40 years old and did have some uh, vulnerabilities which uh, don't exist in modern ships. Those vulnerabilities were not known to the crew. Uh, and those vulnerabilities, uh, although inspected by the Coast Guard and ABS, um, uh, were not uh, passed along to the crew. Um, I think what you'll see is a uh, push by the Coast Guard um, to place a little bit more responsibility on owners. I think you'll see recommendations there are recommendations in the report where they get implemented and how timely uh, that um, the, the idea of the past that when you had your last line, um, the ship was with the captain and Shoreside would have no more responsibility for that ship. Um, the, the idea that the captain is always responsible 100%, that may change a little bit. Um, we do see over the course of the last five years, modern technology that a company can set, can set up a command center in Asia and watch its fleet uh, and uh, offer advices to, uh, to, their, uh, to their crew. In this particular case, this was a line of service that was you know, very short. Uh, it was a 52 to 56 hour voyage. You know, weather routing was not an option. Uh, so I think um, what you'll see uh, is that the Coast Guard is going to uh, recommend try to enforce just a little bit more oversight by owners and, and really make sure that the SMS is a, is a working, breathing document every day, and not something that's created and put on a shelf. Okay. Uh, Bruce, over to you. Uh, you've been involved in litigating cases involving offshore jurisdictions such as the Marshall Islands. 
Uh, I'm curious about uh, whether there's a difference. We discussed uh, New York and London in the previous panel, but whether you see a, a benefit or, or difference to bringing cases like that involving those offshore jurisdictions in New York versus uh, off going offshore? Well, as many of you know, the uh, world's, uh, I guess now, second largest ship registry is the Republic of the Marshall Islands. Um, the uh, Marshall Islands code, as it were, uh, its Business Corporations Act, is based on the law of Delaware. Uh, this was done purposefully by the founders of the flag uh, to make it reasonably easy uh, for U.S. litigators and U.S. corporate lawyers, one for the corporate lawyers to flag their ships there, and if a dispute arises, to actually litigate disputes there. Um, if you go to Panama to litigate a dispute, it's in Spanish, uh, and Liberia's justice system essentially doesn't function. Uh, but there is a functioning justice system in the, uh, in the Marshall Islands. I, I, I've been there physically a couple of times, um, judges there are happily uh, often willing to take argument by telephone, uh, although over this past summer in a dispute involving a claim, uh, uh, a derivative claim brought by a shareholder of dry ships, uh, we had two arguments in connection with a preliminary injunction and temporary restraining uh, order, which were held on a Monday, 4 p.m. Majoreau time, which was Sunday New York time at midnight. Um, so while that wasn't perfect, uh, well, we won, we, we were able to fend off those injunctions. Um, and the cases you cite when you litigate in the Marshall Islands are, by and large, a handful of Marshall Islands decisions. There are two or three, for instance, decisions from Marshall Island judges on what it takes to get a temporary restraining order, what standard do you need to meet to get a, a preliminary injunction. Uh, but the bo main body of law is Delaware decisional law, which New York lawyers deal with every day who handle, like I do, uh, commercial disputes. Um, there's a small judiciary. Um, in 2011, we handled a case before uh, Judge J uh, Carl Ingram, uh, who is a, an African-American man uh, who graduated from Stanford and Stanford Law School, um, worked as a lawyer in the U.S. for a while, chucked it, joined the Peace Corps, uh, and ended up in the Marshall Islands where he's married to a Marshallese woman. Um, and so here's a very bright guy, um, and we put a very complicated securities claim in front of him, um, and we might as well have been in Delaware arguing before him, and the decision went to the uh, Supreme Court of the Marshall Islands, and what they do there is they have an on-staff uh, chief justice who's actually an assistant attorney general in Alaska who flies down a couple times a year to hear cases, and then they pull judges from other jurisdictions, and that may, may be other islands in the Pacific, such as Guam and Palau, or the U.S. So when we argued before the Supreme Court, we had the chief judge, the Alaskan AG, plus a district judge and a magistrate judge, both from Hawaii. So, and again, arguing Delaware law, all these guys went to law school where they learned Delaware law when they learned corporate law. So. Uh, there is a developing body of law there, and there are real judges. So it, it's uh, not all that different than litigating here. Interesting. Uh, you've all been involved to one degree or another in some of the bankruptcy cases that have gone through uh, shipping. And I'd like to know uh, how you feel the courts are looking at maritime liens these days in uh, the US bankruptcy context. So maybe. Uh, 
Jane or Bill, you want to tackle that? Or? Um, sure, I'll jump right in. Um, in the early stages of the most recent wave of shipping bankruptcies, because shipping is very cyclical, there have been wave after wave, um, but in the earlier part of the current wave, um, bankruptcy judges were a little surprised that something called maritime liens exist, secret liens that aren't recorded anywhere that may come ahead of a mortgage. Um, so it was a bit of an education process in the earlier cases. But now I think most of bankruptcy judges have at least heard of them and know that they have to deal with them. So it's not so much an education process on day one going for the, before the bankruptcy court. It's more getting in there and trying to figure out what are we going to do with these liens, how are we going to deal with them in the bankruptcy court. So we're not starting from square one quite as much as, as we used to have to do, which I think is, is a positive development. Um, has there been a consensus of how they deal with them, where they put them on the scale of, of creditors? Well, I think in terms of uh, the bankruptcy court's obviously going to follow the maritime law when they talk about the lien, but I think what, what's occurred over the last four or five years with respect to maritime bankruptcies is, um, you know, we had a, a rush to the courthouse in, in the maritime sector for these bankruptcies, and if you go back 15 years prior to that or 20 years, it was a really good market. You didn't have that experience with the bankruptcy judges. So what the bankruptcy courts now are doing are really relying on, and hopefully those who file for, for bankruptcy are relying on the maritime lawyers to give them some insight on how to deal with these maritime liens uh, because it was uh, something that they hadn't dealt with before. Um, so uh, in one sense, the while the market is, uh, has, has been poor on the litigation side because there's less claims, on the bankruptcy side over the last five years, it's been some significant work for maritime lawyers. Um, but, uh, and, and, and working together with uh, some sophisticated bankruptcy counsel. Uh, I also, before we run out of time or throw it open to the floor, wanted to bring up the Jones Act, which has been in the news lately uh, as a result of the hurricanes that have hit Texas and, and Florida and Puerto Rico and the waiver of the Jones Act by the president. And I have to say, I don't recall any president commenting as this one has. Uh, he said, President Trump said, we have a lot of shippers and a lot of people who work with shippers who don't want the Jones Act lifted. Uh, very interesting, and I'm curious uh, your thoughts about how the Jones Act is faring these days. Well, I'll start with this. With respect to the El Faro, which come out of that, mm. is that the Coast Guard uh, in the months following, uh, conducted a very, very rigorous inspection of the U.S. fleet. And as a result of that, um, four ships were scrapped. And that is going to be uh, probably something that uh, you're going to see more of in the next three or four years as these ships get older, which is good for the capital markets to see whether, because those ships are going to need to be replaced. Um, the Jones Act uh, and the ships that fall into the Jones Act are, are absolutely required. Um, there's always going to be some detractors, uh, but if we're going to maintain a military force that needs to get around the world, if we're going to be the nation that supports other poorer nations in times of disaster, um, our, our American fleet, being someone who graduated from Maritime Academy, um, our American fleet has to be uh, turned over um, with newer ships, modern ships, uh, and the government's going to need to support that 100%. I can comment on 
much of last week with some shipping uh, executives in the Jones Act space. And of course, whenever there's a disaster and there's discussions of Jones Act waivers and whether that's a hurricane, uh, a hurricane in Puerto Rico or the Deepwater Horizon a number of years ago, uh, there's a lot of misinformation in the U.S. press about the Jones Act, what the Jones Act means. Um, a congressman told me years ago that it is written in granite. Uh, I don't expect it's going to change. Uh, but, for instance, not last uh, Thursday, the New York Times, in an editorial, indicated that uh, the Jones Act, for instance, prohibits foreign ships from calling Puerto Rico, which isn't true. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. My understanding is that uh, the waiver in this case wasn't really required. The problem isn't so much the containers getting to Puerto Rico, but the containers getting out of the port due to the destroyed infrastructure and lack of truck drivers um, in Puerto Rico. So. Uh, you know, one of these days, perhaps there'll be a sensible discussion in Congress about the Jones Act, although I don't have any great hopes. Thanks. And just to jump in on the Jones Act, since we're talking about it, I, you never hear about the Jones Act until recently with the hurricanes. So I think it's a good thing that people are actually talking about it because it's been sort of the uh, shipping is kind of the stepchild of American industry, and we really shouldn't be. We're an important part of the U.S. economy and the world economy. Um, certainly in the transactional space, we've been seeing a lot of interest in Jones Act companies, um, both on the restructuring side, either in or out of bankruptcy, um, and on the New Deal side. Um, one deal we're working on now is actually a merger and acquisition transaction uh, that has a Jones as aspect. And so that's something, um, like I was saying, very new and different for traditional shipping lawyers, and I think part of the excitement in the, uh, in the shipping space now is is uh, some of the activity in the Jones Act space. Okay, any questions from the audience before uh, we dispute? No, it's your chance. Oh, so one other question I had is on um, maritime arbitration. The last panel went through the benefits of New York arbitration. Uh, I'd like to know how your caseloads look. Are there efforts to promote New York bearing fruit? Well, I think you got to start with the foundation that uh, there's simply less claims that are being uh, uh, assigned counsel. Um, the clubs and the claim handlers and domestic and foreign insurers now have a pretty sophisticated legal team, so they keep in a lot of the smaller cases and, and deal with them themselves. Um, so uh, what you see in the arbitration are some of the very significant matters that are uh, very important to the companies and they're not negotiating and they're, they're not mediating they're putting them right into arbitration but they're, they're not the small ones they're few and far between it's a lot of competition for them um, but uh, I find that arbitration is a very good means of, of uh, resolving a dispute it, it is nominally cheaper I think sometimes when you have a certain panel uh, if you took the cost of paying a that panel and put it towards discovery, it may, it may even out, but uh, for the most part, I think you get a sophisticated group of gentlemen who uh, know your issue and you don't have to spend time educating a judge. So it's a, it's a, it's a good form to, uh, to resolve maritime disputes. Yeah, I could comment that over the last, I'd say, five years, uh, at least my docket has been largely litigation and not arbitration with the exception of the enforcement of inbound awards. 
which we say, uh, see a fair amount of Jeff Dine sitting in the audience here with me. We're now enforcing three Hong Kong awards uh, here in the U.S. Uh, but I don't have an arbitration going now, and uh, that, usually there was always one uh, going on. And, and, you know, as the prior panel um, talked about, one of the great benefits of arbitration is finality, uh, that you get uh, an award and it's done over your grounds for overturning it or vacating it are very limited in court. Um, and, and everybody loves finality when they're drafting the contract but they hate it when they lose. Um, so there are some commercial people that prefer litigation to arbitration because if they get a, a bad ruling at the district court level or at the trial court level, they can always appeal. Uh, and that's a philosophical debate that uh, people have about whether they want to say, would prefer to litigate larger disputes uh, and arbitrate smaller ones. And, and there are clauses that have those options. Um, so there's a lot of options out there. Uh, I, would, I would put a plug in for New York uh, arbitration over London arbitration based on what the last panel said. Um, it is cheaper to arbitrate here. It is quicker to, to, to arbitrate here. You do not need uh, barristers to arbitrate here. And you can get just as bad a decision in New York and have it be <laughs> final as you can in London, and it's cheaper. So uh, this really is the place, all kidding aside, to, to arbitrate your disputes. Thank you. I'd like to jump in oh, and, sure and uh, sorry, sorry. Um, go off one thing that uh, that Bruce was saying, sort of a con contrast with London. Um, we're active in arbitration here, but our London office is much more active in arbitration uh, on the English side. But one thing I found very interesting is whatever questions they have in arbitration in, in London, 90% of the time we'll get a question from our London office saying, well, how would you handle this in New York? Do you have any arbitration decisions you can send us? What's your thought on this? So I don't know if it's something formally that's being done in London or if our uh, arbitrate or if our um, litigation department in London is being more creative, but they are looking over here and seeing what New York law is on a number of uh, maritime issues. And I don't know quite how they're using them there because they haven't showed me that yet, but they are definitely very interested in what would a New York court or a New York arbitrator say on a whole lot of maritime issues. So there may be something that grows out of that sure. in the years to come. May have to do with the fact that New York publishes the arbitration decisions. I, huh? I think that's a big part yeah, of it, sure. is that there is actually access to those decisions here. Right. right. Well, any questions? No, in that case, I think uh, we're about out of time, and it's time for lunch. Thank you for your attention.